Father, will you take the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit and speak to us and give us ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, William, I think I made a huge mistake last week. Because not only did you get up here and preach, but then you sang on top of that. And when I walked in this morning, someone said, So, Pastor Matt, are you going to sing for us this morning? So I think I poisoned the well a little bit. Great job last week. Praise God for you. I love you. No, I'm not going to sing for you. And that is to your benefit, I promise. Thank you. Uh, praise God. There you go. I am not going to sing for you. Um, but I would like a little bit of space this morning because just like I talked about as we ordained and reinstalled our elders and deacons, um, I just want to talk to us as a community of faith uh, about the importance of our leadership. And um, on a day where Jerry and Rob have been ordained, of course, I'm, 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 I'm communicating this to you. I'm communicating this to all of our elders and deacons. I promise you there's nothing I'm going to say from this pulpit that I am not preaching to myself. This is an incredibly hard message uh, to not only prepare and to live under, but to preach uh, in light of the fact that I too am a teaching elder that is uh, in front of you every single week and trying to serve you and the Lord very well. Uh, but I am a firm believer, as I've already said, healthy churches are the result of the movement of God, of course, but because of healthy leadership too. Uh, healthy churches, good churches, spirit-filled churches are, are there because we have good, healthy, spirit-filled leadership. And it has been my experience at Trinity. I hope it's been your experience too. We have good, healthy, and spirit-filled leadership from our diaconate to our elders to our staff. It is a pleasure for me to serve at Trinity. I don't have anybody that's at my throat I don't have anybody who calls me into a room after I preach and chews me out about anything. I never walk into a deacon's meeting and not feel unwelcome. I never walk into a staff meeting and cringe that I have to go there. I never go to a session meeting and worry that someone's going to try to take me down. I love getting to serve with these men. I love it. And it's because I believe they have committed themselves not just to be good leaders of this church, but to be good followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. And we are blessed to have them. And if you've never been in a church that has unhealthy leadership, you don't know how blessed you are. But if you have been in a church where unhealthy leadership has been on display, then you know what a blessing it is to live under godly leadership. But this morning, I want to speak to us as leaders, not just elders, deacons, and staff. I want to speak to those who volunteer in our ministry areas of our women's ministry, our, our 55 plus children, youth, young adults, Hispanic ministry. We have so many wonderful leaders who lead in so many different ways. I also want to speak into uh, those who are learning how to be leaders, our future leaders, men and women who God is raising up in our midst. Some of them were on this stage this morning, like Whitley was up here, and, and Taylor's come up here before. Caleb's here this morning. I mean, you guys, listen, you're, you're becoming great leaders too. We want to do everything we can to speak into your life. Here's one of the things that, that caught me off guard, but I absolutely loved. I was in my office Friday. I was just about to leave. I got a phone call 
from a friend of mine who's a deacon in the very first church that I served as a youth minister in Shelby, North Carolina. And he said, hey, I just wanted to share something cool with you. We uh, just voted on a new youth minister, uh, and, his, and it's Andrew Bowen. And I, you don't know who that is. But Andrew Bowen was a nine-year-old when I was the youth minister at Mount Sinai Baptist Church. His sister was in my youth group. Their family, man, they just took me in. They blessed me. I got to eat in their home. They, they were just some of the most encouraging people I've ever met. And I, I've just lost track of Andrew. I knew from time to time he grew up. Uh, I think, I know he roots for Duke. I don't think he went to Duke. I've forgiven him for rooting for Duke. But um, I still believe he's a godly young man, even though he roots for Duke, if that's possible. But he is now graduated from college, four years serving InterVarsity, and then his home church called him to be the youth minister. And this is what it just did for me. I want the same from Trinity. I want us to be people who create an incubator for godly men and women to raise up that can lead this church into the future and lead other churches into the future. We are that. You are that as a community of faith. But I want us to protect that, don't you? I want young men and women to come out of this congregation and push the kingdom forward. And it starts with hard conversations and hard sermons like this, okay? So I want to encourage you. I cannot put the cookies on the bottom shelf this morning. Uh, I need you to take some notes. I need you to stay with me. I need you to open your Bibles. We got a clip this morning, okay? So I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. You're going to have to write some things down because these are incredibly heavy concepts, but I know you can get them, but I feel like they're so crucial to us to understand what it means to lead Trinity forward into what God has called us to be. We have been talking to you about the vision that God has entrusted to us as a body of believers, that Trinity is to be a dynamic fellowship that loves Jesus Christ and that unites generations and cultures through the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel to transform individuals and families and communities. I believe that's who we are, but I believe that's who we're becoming. That is going to take good, healthy leadership to go there. We have not been there yet. God wants to take us to a new place. That is going to require good, healthy leadership to go there. And I believe we have what it takes. But I believe we've got to grow. I believe I've got to grow. I believe our leadership has to grow. Our staff has to grow. And you, as a member of our congregation, we have to grow if we're going to attain everything that God has called us to do. So Matthew chapter 11, let me set this up for you. Most of you are familiar with John the Baptist, this amazing prophet that God raises up. And when John comes on the scene, God had not been actively speaking to his people through prophets for over 400 years. They had the writings of the Old Testament that they were referencing. They had the stories of Moses and David, uh, prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of the prophets. But God had not been actively speaking through prophets for over 400 years. And then John comes on the scene and he has a message. Here's his message. Repent, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And what follows shortly after that? The appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Who said... The kingdom of heaven is among you. And people would come out into the desert and they would be baptized by John and they would listen to him and they were repenting of this, their sins. God raises up this powerful prophet. But John, once he had set the table for Jesus, 
people began to start following Jesus and stop following John. Now, that would have created a lot of insecurity for most of us. But for John, he was very content because he knew his work and he knew it had been done. In fact, he was so faithful, people stopped following him, started following Jesus, and he ended up in prison because he preached against a king who was committing adultery with another man's wife. So when we pick up in Matthew chapter 11, John is now in prison. Jesus is teaching a crowd, and John has sent followers to Jesus because John is doubting his faith in prison. And he is sending these followers, and he wants them to ask Jesus, are you really the one we've been waiting on, or was I wrong? And Jesus tells those followers enough information that John can make his own decision, but Jesus did not say, yeah, I'm the one. You know why he did that? He wanted to protect John's faith. He wanted John to have to hold on to his faith, even in a prison cell. Now John's followers leave. Jesus turns to the crowd and listen to what he says about John the Baptist. Truly I tell you, down to verse 11, I'm sorry, Matthew 11, verse 11 and 12. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. What a statement. Think about what that statement means. Greater than Moses? Greater than David? Greater than Isaiah, Jeremiah? You name it in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, no one's been born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. Astounding. You would have thought Jesus would have passed that on to the prison cell, right? Chose not to do that. Look at what he says here. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus flips that whole power dynamic upside down, doesn't he? In the kingdom, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, the least shall be greatest. It is the servant that is the greatest leader of all. Right? Now verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. And violent people have been raiding it. So when John entered onto the scene, the kingdom of God begins to invade the world. The spiritual kingdom begins to invade the physical world. Now, I want you to hang with me because uh, Professor Matt is going to give you a little bit of a Greek lesson. You know I hardly ever do this, but I think this is really important for this passage. So when uh, you speak of verbs, you give them voices. And what you do is verbs uh, commute action, right? They communicate action in a sentence. And the voice is what type of action is happening. So in Greek, there are three ways to describe that action. The first, you can use an active voice, meaning I'm the subject, I do the thing, and I'm acting on something else. For instance, I wash, I wash my dog. You get me? That's an active voice for that verb. But in Greek, you can also use a passive voice, meaning that I'm the subject, but something is happening to me. So instead of, I washed my dog, it would be, I am washed. Does that make sense? But Greek has this other way of talking about it that we don't use too well in English. It's called the middle voice. And here's what happens. It says this, I am washing myself. In other words, I'm not only the subject, but I'm the one receiving the action. I'm doing and I'm receiving the action. So in the middle voice, you are receiving it. I wash myself. Not someone washes me, passive. Not I wash, active, but in the middle voice, I am being washed. Now, why do I need that little tidbit, Pastor Matt? Well, because this little trick in Greek is really important. 
when you're reading along in the original language, the way you write the middle voice and the passive voice is the same way. The words look exactly the same. The letters are the same. The phrasing's the same. So how do you figure out when it's the middle voice and when it's the passive voice? It's all about the context. Are you following me? You have to read what's going on in the context. Now, the good scholars who got together and wrote our NIV chose to write verse 12 this way. You ready? Follow me. It says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. That is the passive voice. Do you hear that? It is being done to the kingdom of God. And it says, And violent people have been raiding it. So that Greek word for violence is to, uh, to exert your will or to force yourself onto someone. We translate that violence. And in this choice, they decided that they should use the passive voice. But I want you to take your Bibles. If you got one of the pew Bibles, you should have a B right there after that first violence. And in your translation, you probably have one too. That's a footnote. If you go down to the bottom you see another sentence. Mine says, or, you see that? Or, been forcefully advancing. Whenever you see that in Scripture, you see an alternative like that, what that writer is telling you is, there is another way this could be translated, and it's just as good, but we chose this way. The one that's in the translation is the one we chose, but we want you to know, this is just as good. This represents, guess what? The middle voice meaning that it is the kingdom of God that is not only doing the action, but receiving the action. And here's how that would be translated. Maybe some of your translations has that. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing. It has been advancing itself forcefully, and forceful men take hold of it. You see the difference? Is the translation that the kingdom is suffering violence? Surely that's true. We know of the kingdom of darkness's assault on the kingdom of God. I mean, John the Baptist himself is now in prison, right? Because the kingdom of God has been experiencing violence. But I don't think that's the best translation. I think the best translation is that the kingdom is itself forcefully advancing. And I'll show you why I believe that. And I believe the better translation is that forceful men and women take hold of the kingdom. The reason first that I believe that is, to me, where it says, and violent people have been raiding it, the kingdom of God is a spiritual thing. So anyone who has been violently raiding the kingdom of God is a wicked person in this context, and a wicked person is not going to be influencing a spiritual reality. Does that make sense? If this was a physical kingdom, that makes sense. But it doesn't make sense from a spiritual standpoint. So I believe it's saying the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing itself, and those who are forceful take hold of it. Now here's how that backs up to me. I want you to flip to the right in your Bible, to Matthew chapter 16. I preached on this before. I did it a couple years ago when I came back from Israel. Remember we talked about uh, Jesus taking his followers out uh, north of Israel to this wonderful place where it was referred to in that culture as the gates of hell. They believed that one of the pagan gods would enter into that cave, go down into hell, and when he returned, it would bring spring. 
Jesus takes his disciples there. They have all these pagan idols set up. And he decides that it's in that context. He says to them, uh, who do the people say that I am? You've, you've been with me for a year and a half. Who do you say I am? And they gave him all kinds of answers. They said, well, you know, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think Jeremiah or Isaiah. Some people think one of the prophets. And Jesus is like, oh, that's, that's great. But, but what about you? You've been, you've been following me for a year and a half. Who do you say I am? And you remember that it was Peter the spokesman, right? Who is the one who speaks up. Chapter 16, verse 16 of Matthew. Simon Peter answered, You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, Peter is not the rock that Jesus built his church on. The rock is Peter's confession that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay? That is the rock on which Jesus built his church. But he says, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Meaning, the church is going to advance. The church is the expression of the kingdom of God on the earth. It is the spiritual reality of God breaking through on the physical earth. And he said the church would be advancing in such a way that the gates of hell itself would not prevail against the church. What do you use gates for? What do gates do? Are gates offensive weapons? Do I take my gates and I attack people with gates? Not unless they're standing right outside and I'm really good, right? I mean, I guess I could push the gate open and kill somebody that way, but usually not. Gates are defensive things. They're there to protect. This is what he's saying. The kingdom will advance. The kingdom moves forward. The church moves forward. And when it does, even what hell has set up to protect itself, the strongholds that hell has built on this earth, hell itself will not prevail against the kingdom of God and the church. Now let me ask you, does that sound like a kingdom that violence is being done to or that is forcefully advancing? That sounds like a kingdom that is forcefully advancing to me. And because I believe we're part of a kingdom that is forcefully advancing, we have to take seriously the challenge that it is forceful people who seize the kingdom, not passive people. That is, we want to see the kingdom of God advanced in Florence. Listen to me. It's going to take effort. It's not just going to come to us. We have to go. We have to go from these pews out to there. We have to go to people who do not know the Lord. We have to share the gospel with them. We have to challenge our culture in everywhere that it challenges the kingdom. We go into schools. We go into workplaces. We go into homes. We talk to our angels. The kingdom is forcefully advancing. And if we want to see God's vision for Trinity come to fruition, we have to be people who forcefully seize the kingdom as well. Are you with me so far? Have I lost you yet? Listen, we are called to be forceful people. We're called to be forceful people. So Matthew 6, to the left in your Bible, a few chapters back. Matthew chapter 6, you've heard this before. But I think we miss a really important part of this. 
part of one of Jesus' longest sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about possessions. And he's talking about not worrying. He's talking about God's ability to provide for us in every way. And he wraps up that entire discussion by saying this, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. These things are the daily needs of life. But seek first his kingdom. Would you please take your pen and underline that? Seek first his kingdom. And maybe uh, if you're, you do the hearts or whatever, you do, I don't know what you do around your scripture. But box in first for me, like circle first. Seek first. Then I want you to underline the next two phrases. Seek first his kingdom and what? His righteousness. Now I think that when we hear this verse, our mind is drawn to what comes first. Seek first his kingdom. Surely we need to be seeking his kingdom. No doubt. It's important. But what is the second command to seek first? We're not seeking one thing first. We're seeking two things first. We seek the kingdom, but also first, what do we seek? His righteousness. Righteousness is one of those big church words that sometimes we misunderstand. Righteousness is that state of being right with God. Our sins have been forgiven. The blood of Jesus has been applied to our life. Our eternity is set. We are righteous before Him. And as we live that out, as sin comes into our life day in and day out, we make that right by seeking forgiveness and having the blood of Jesus applied to us again. We become righteous again and again and again. We live as righteous people. We maintain righteousness. What do we seek? We seek the kingdom first, and we seek His righteousness at the exact same time. Listen to me. This is why it's important. One of the biggest things we've done wrong in America is we've tried to push the kingdom of God forward and not focused on our righteousness. Listen, we rally around large churches and big personalities. And that is inevitable at times. Because God gifts men and women incredibly. And when the kingdom of God is advanced through them, People rally to that, just like it happened for John the Baptist, just like it happened for Jesus, just like it happened for Paul. That's not a sinful thing. But here's what we've not been careful with. We've not been careful to make sure that as we're violently pushing the kingdom forward, that we're also focusing on our own righteousness. And here's what happens. Our ministries become bigger than our righteousness can handle. Do you understand what I mean by that? There is always a gap. Listen to me. There's always a gap. I don't care who you read or who you listen to or who you worship to. There's always a gap between what we present right here in this pulpit and what is really in our heart. There's always a gap. Here's the goal. That it be as small as humanly possible. That's the goal. And how does that get maintained? And not just seeking the kingdom, but seeking his righteousness. So brothers and sisters, I'm coming to you. Leaders, listen to me. We're going to be given opportunities to push the kingdom forward here in Florence. I have no doubt about that. There's just too much darkness around for God not to want to move in Florence and to use you to do it. There's just too much. 
But I want to say something to you. I'm not afraid as to whether or not we're going to have the opportunity. I'm afraid that we won't maintain our righteousness to the level that we will stay faithful when the opportunity comes. We have to be ready to have a depth of righteousness that will support the work of pushing the kingdom forward. Are you, with, are you following me? And I want you to get this. You've got to get this. Matthew 21. I want you to flip there. Matthew 21. Gosh, this is a hard word. Man, I came right back and I hit you with a whammy, didn't I? Matthew chapter 21. Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. And his old thorn in the side, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, are hammering him one more time. They're challenging everything he says. They're saying you're not God. They're saying you're a hypocrite. They're saying you, you eat with tax collectors and sinners. They're saying you're a drunkard. They're saying John the Baptist wasn't real. They're saying you're not real. All of those things, they're constantly hammering Jesus. And Jesus tells this parable. And sometimes we have to wonder what Jesus is talking about. But Matthew tells us he told the parable explicitly about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So I would encourage you to go back in your own time and read in Matthew 21 the parable of the tenants because it is about those leaders. But I want you to hear what he says at the end of the parable. He says this, And uh, leaders, let me uh, challenge you to take two verses and either memorize them or put them on a mirror or put them in your car where you can see them every day. You've got to live in the reality of these two verses. Listen to this. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Verse 44. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Everybody gets broken. Did you see that? Everybody gets broken. We fall on the rock that is Jesus and we are broken in humility. Or the rock of Jesus falls on us and we are crushed. Everybody gets broken. As a leader, I want to fall on the rock and be broken. I don't want to be crushed. I don't want to be crushed. And what's even more scary to me than that is what verse 43 says. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. I've said the last two times I've been in the pulpit, I want to see the kingdom of God pushed forward in Florence and South Carolina and the United States and the world. I want to see it. It's absolutely happening right now. I believe it. I want Trinity to be a part of that. But listen to me. I don't care who God uses. He can use this church. He can use whatever generation he wants. I don't care as long as the kingdom goes forward. But here's what I don't want to happen. I don't want him to use somebody else because we couldn't be faithful. Do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus told the Pharisees and he told the teachers of the law, God gave the word of God to you. He gave the prophets to you. It's your job to lead our people. It was your job to know the word. It was your job to teach the people what God was wanting. And when God himself in human flesh stood among you, you not only did not recognize him, but you opposed me at every turn. And you're plotting to murder me. 
And listen to me. Since you will produce the fruit of the kingdom, God is going to take the kingdom out of your hands and he's going to give it to people who will produce his fruit. And you know that's exactly what he did? It's called Acts chapter 2. What happened in Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit fell on a bunch of country bumpkins and they changed the world. And a poor fisherman, an uneducated man like Peter, stands up and in one sermon preaches and 3,000 men, not counting women and children, get saved and they're baptizing them left and right. That was a long day. God took the kingdom from the religious leaders and he put it in the hands of fishermen. And we are the benefactors of that. And he's been taking the kingdom out of people's hands who are unfaithful for thousands of years now and putting it into the hands of people who will push the kingdom forward for thousands of years. And I want to say this to you. I believe your faith is the result of that. People who are faithful. I believe this church is the result of that. People who were faithful, who refused to compromise, who refused to, to be like the world, who set themselves apart. It was good, godly leaders for over almost 40 years now. I believe that's why we've inherited all this. But I want to say something to you. We have no promises that it will endure. There is no promise that it will endure. All the churches that are addressed in Scripture, Corinth, Ephesus, Galatia, Thessalonica, I mean, these are like the heavy hitters, right? I mean, letters were written to these churches. Their letters became holy Scripture and will endure into eternity. Guess how many of those churches are still in existence now? The church at Rome. The church at Rome. One, there's no guarantee that God's work among a people will endure. You know what will always endure? The kingdom. You know why God takes the kingdom out of the hands of people that won't advance it? But because the kingdom can't be stopped. Right? The kingdom is going to break open the gates of hell. The kingdom is forcefully advancing. And when people seek first the kingdom and righteousness with God, then he puts the kingdom into their hands. I want to be that pastor. I want you to be those people. I want that. So I want to speak a hard word to you this morning. I was at Daniel Mealy's wedding last Sunday. One of the coolest weddings I've done. I just, I love Daniel. And he, he's found this incredibly godly young woman. They have waited. Uh, Daniel was, what, what's Daniel, 28? 28, she's like 31 and they waited. They waited for a godly young man and a godly young woman to come around the corner. Young people, listen to your pastor. They are out there. I know you feel like they're not out there. I know you don't see any godly young men and women around you, and you think I'm the only one walking with Jesus in my 20s and my teens. No, 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 no. Listen, they're out there, and they are worth it. I promise you, when I stood at that altar and I married those two people, I kept thinking, it's worth it. It's worth it to have this. It's worth it. Wait. Wait. After I did the wedding, we were eating these amazing cookies and cake and all that stuff. Jerry and I went and got 
early access to cookies. It was amazing. We're sitting, we're talking, and sitting beside me at the table was the man who founded a ministry that Daniel has been a part of for the last four years, the Charlotte Eagles. He has uh, done mission work all over the world using soccer as a ministry in inner city Charlotte and also all over the world. It's been incredible. And we just got talking about ministry stuff. Ministers get together. That's what we do. We just kind of compare notes. And this is what he said. He said, Matt, um, it's been a hard couple of years, so tell me, what, what do you feel like is the biggest hindrance uh, to God's work at Trinity? What, what do you think it is? Is it COVID? Is it politics? Is it disunity? Is it the race issues? What, what do you feel like is the biggest one? And uh, this is how I answered, and this is my heart. Here's what I absolutely fear. I fear the biggest hindrance to God's movement at Trinity is me. My heart. My immaturity. The areas of my life where I am still struggling with disobedience. I am not telling you that because I'm having an affair on the side. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not embezzling money. I'm not addicted to pornography. I'm not. Th- that's not what I'm saying. But listen, I know me. And here's what I know. I've got to grow if we're going to go forward. I have to go to new places of obedience if we're going to go forward. There are things I have to understand about the Word and the Lord and the Holy Spirit if we're going to go forward. This church does not revolve around me, but I'm a part of the leadership. I'm a part of this staff. And so I'm expanding that down, and I'm saying a hard word. Elders, deacons, staff, listen to me. Listen to your pastor. We're going to have to grow. There are more areas of obedience we're going to have to sow away. There are things we're going to have to learn. We can't be who we are now and go to the places God's calling us to go. We have to grow. We have to grow. We have to be forceful people who are grasping a forcefully advancing kingdom. Because I do not want God to take the kingdom out of our hands and give it to someone else. I want to push it forward. Not for my glory, but for God's. And you do too. I know you. Because I'm seeing you do it already. I'm seeing the nonprofits you volunteer in. I'm seeing how you love your neighbors. I'm seeing how you preach the gospel. I'm seeing how you're discipling and mentoring people day in and day out. I am so proud of you and energized by you as your pastor. I believe God wants to use us, but we've got to be careful. Because this does not have to endure forever. So, what does it look like? What does it look like? What's the road forward as a leader? And I'm going to come right down here. Because I'm preaching to myself just as much as I preach to you. Please write these things down. Because you may not be an elder or a deacon. Or a staff member. But your holiness matters too. It matters too. Number one, the road forward. If we want to be people who forcefully advance the kingdom, we have to radically embrace reality. We have to look at our heart. We have to look at our life. We have to look at our actions. And we have to radically embrace reality. Here was the starting point for me. I sat down in my office Friday. I opened my Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3, to Titus chapter 1, and 1 Peter chapter 5 which are the biblical qualifications for an elder. And I had to walk down that list, and I had to have a hard conversation with myself. Am I exhibiting these things in my life? What has to grow? What has to change? That was the starting point for me. 
Radically embrace reality. Number two, respond with repentance. Respond with repentance. I want you to hear what I did not say and what I did say. I didn't say respond with confession. I said respond with repentance. We can fall into sin patterns, and this can be our habit, to continually come and confess those to the Lord. And listen to me. God forgives us every single time. Every single time you forgive a sin or you confess a sin, Jesus forgives you and he wipes it clean. But sometimes we are content just to confess our sins and not repent. Here's what repentance does. I come with confession, but then I appeal to all the Holy Spirit power of God to help me change and not fall into that sin again. And if I do, I confess and I seek to repent again and again. That's the difference between confession and repentance. I want to challenge us. When we look at ourselves in reality, we respond with repentance, not just confession. Repentance. We seek to change. Number three, focus on your Savior and not your sin. Now, wait a minute, Pastor Matt. You just said radically embrace reality. You just said respond with repentance, and now you're saying don't focus on your sin. Acknowledging the reality of our sin is never going to solve your sin problem. Looking at your Savior is going to solve your sin problem. If I take a two-by-four and I lay it right here in this aisle, I can walk a two-by-four without falling off of it. I absolutely can. If I take that same two-by-four and I suspend it 30 stories in the air between two skyscrapers in New York City and I try to walk that two by four good chance I'm going to fall you know what the difference in the two is Nothing. Same, same two by four you know what the difference is when it's sitting on the floor I'm not worried about falling off of it because I'm not focused on it I'm just walking but when you up the stakes then you focus on falling and I got news for you you focus on falling long enough guess what's going to happen you're going to fall I want you to radically own the parts of your life that need to be changed. But you can't focus on your sinful habits. The way to be changed is to focus on Jesus. The more I look at Jesus, the more I become like Jesus. The more I focus on Jesus, the more I love Jesus. The more I love Jesus, the more the sinful habits in my life will be broken down and the more I will change. Focusing on your sin is only going to make you obsessed with sin. Focus on your Savior. Be honest about your sin, but focus on your Savior. Are you with me? Are you with me? Number four. What's the road forward? Reject the flesh as the means to solve your sin issues. Scripture talks about your flesh meaning your body, but it also talks about something else when it's talking about the flesh. The New Testament often refers to the flesh as the spiritual reality that opposes the Spirit of God. And what that reality is made up of this. It's all the energies that I can cook up for myself to try to accomplish anything in life. It's called the flesh. When I try to preach on a Sunday morning in my flesh, it opposes the Spirit. When I try to love my wife or my kids in my own abilities, I fall every single time. I am not telling you, listen to me, I am not telling you leaders, do better in your own ability. You can't do better. You know why I know that? Because that's, 
That's why you had that habit in your life, period. You've been trying. You've been trying to do better. I know what that feels like. I know what it is to go through that cycle and to say, God, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to fall into that anymore. And then fall into it again, the condemnation that comes with that. Listen, you cannot be a person who depends on your resources to solve your sin problems. This is what Jesus said. John chapter 3, verse 6. Not 16 that we know. John chapter 3, verse 6. He says this, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. That's what that means. Anything I undertake in my flesh, in my own power, what can it only birth? More flesh. The flesh can't birth the Spirit. But if I let the Spirit of God fill me and work through me, what's going to be birthed out of my life? The Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You have to refuse. Listen to me. Young people learn this early. You have to refuse to try to be holy in your own efforts. It takes the power of God or it will never happen. It will never happen. Number five, the road forward as a leader. Embrace all the resources of the Spirit to transform your heart. Embrace the resources of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 5. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. It doesn't come by my efforts comes through the spirit but by faith we eagerly await through the spirit the righteousness for which we hope and then ephesians chapter 5 verse 22 through 23 you've heard this before the fruits of the spirit but the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law let me ask you are you needing more love peace patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in your life. You need more of that. It's not going to come by you trying harder. It is the fruit of the Spirit. Who bears it? The Spirit does. When the Spirit is alive in us, the fruit He produces is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of Matt Walton. It's not the fruit of Fred Sally. That'd be some tainted fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Be in tune with Him and fruit comes. Number six, Embrace grace as a constant need in your life. One of the biggest mistakes we make as believers, we believe we're saved by grace, and we leave grace at the door of salvation. Grace is not just so you can enter into relationship with Jesus. It is your relationship with Jesus. You get that? Grace covers your every aspect of relationship with Jesus. From the time you entered in until the time he takes you home, it will be grace that maintains your relationship with Jesus. The undeserved favor of God poured out on you day in and day out. It is grace that not only saved you, it is grace that is saving you. It's saving you. And last but not least, here's the road forward. Refuse to lower the standard. Refuse to lower the standard. Don't lower it in your life. Don't lower the standard when it comes to your leaders, your staff, your pastor. Expect a high standard. We can be people of grace, spirit-filled, and still expect a high standard. Do you know why all these monumental ministries end up taking a fall? You know how it happens? No one just wakes up overnight and decides, I'm going to be immoral. 
No one wakes up overnight and just decides I'm going to be a violent, prideful person who abuses people. No one does. It is a slow increment again and again and again and again and again until you find yourself in a place you never thought you would be. So as we end today, I'm just going to ask us to stand as a congregation. Let me just ask you to stand as a congregation. You heard enough singing from William last week. You're good. You got your feel. I want to invite our elders, our deacons, and our staff, and any volunteer ministry leader, women's ministry, 55 plus, if, you're, if you consider yourself a volunteer leader within our community, I, wish, I want to invite you to come to this altar. And the reason I want to do that is because if I gave 